I'm Timothy, and today Garrick and I will be talking to Josh Chatro about what it looks like to focus our apologetics on the cross. And in the second half of this week's episode, we'll be looking at David Bowie and the offensiveness of the cross. Well, if you're interested in learning more about how to engage the culture with apologetics that is focused on the cross, take a look at the book Truth in a Culture of Doubt by Daryl Bach and Josh Chatro, published by our friends at B&H Academic. Learn more about Truth in a Culture of Doubt and many other outstanding resources at bhacademic.com. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. In each episode of this podcast, my friend Garrick Bailey and I tackle a topic that makes it difficult to trust the truth of the Christian faith. Along the way, we talk about music, movies, theology, and culture. Thank you so much for joining us today for this podcast. To support this podcast and to receive Three Chords and the Truth books and merchandise, go to patreon.com slash three chords and the truth. That's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Welcome, Josh. We're glad to have you on our Three Chords and the Truth Apologetics Podcast. I have a question, an opening question for you. If you could instantly gain the guitar superpower playing skills of any human being, living, not so living, who would it be? Well, you know, I'm not really a music buff, but I'd probably have to go with Kenny G. <laughs> All right. That's it. He's off the program. We are no longer using his books, anything, because you didn't even choose a good saxophonist. That was my attempt at a joke, but I would actually, I'm not a music buff, but because of when I grew up, I would go with my favorite band with Dave Matthews Band, and then he played with a guy named Tim Reynolds, so oh, I, I would go with I would go with that, but I'm 37 now, when I was teaching students, I would sometimes reference Dave Matthews, and most of my students had no idea. Josh, you have co-written an outstanding apologetics textbook that we use at Southern Seminary in some of my classes entitled Apologetics at the Cross. And I'd just like you to describe what is it that you really mean when you say apologetics at the cross? What are you talking about there? What's different about that? Well, on one hand, we're kind of tipping our hat a little bit to Martin Luther, who talked about the theologian of glory versus the theologian of the cross. And so we're kind of playing with that a little bit, being creative. And one of the things we're talking about there is a certain humility rather than sometimes we think about apologetics as this winning an argument, taking the glory for ourselves, and pounding the atheist, the unbeliever. And what we see is coming from the cross, yes, yes, we are making an argument, but it's ultimately to persuade. Simply winning an argument is actually not enough. And to do that with gentleness and respect, like First Peter 3.15 says. The other part of this, though, and I think the, the thing that makes the book a bit distinct is that we're actually using the cross as a shorthand for the gospel. I think we're on good ground. The Apostle Paul does this. I'll know nothing but Christ and him crucified. He's using that as a shorthand for polemical reasons, but he's including there the whole gospel. And so Paul can do that. We're doing that. We chose cross to pick up on the humility, but really our model is centering around the gospel actually in apologetic conversations, and how do we do that well? So so that's the kind of other part of apologetics at the cross. Yeah. I know you're doing, currently you're doing work in the history of apologetics. You're well-versed, and I'm sure before you wrote the textbook, you thought through, well, how are we going to present this? What is this going to look like? So how do you think that apologetics at the cross looks different than other approaches to apologetics. Like, what was the motivation for, we want to do this because we feel like we see deficiencies in these other models? Well, at one level, what was going on is, I I mean, I started teaching intro apologetics, and I found some helpful books, but not that many for training people going into ministry. What Mark and I, my co-author, what we spent time drinking coffee talking about for about six months was, 
these textbooks, these books on apologetics were written by analytical philosophers. Now, we love analytical philosophers. You'll get them in our book. But there was this gap because oftentimes we teach people, we write a book so that they can be like us. Yeah. <laughs> and so a lot of times the books we were getting were kind of training people who were going to be professional philosophers. We love professional philosophers, but that's actually not how normal street level conversations happen. That's not how preaching happens. And so there's this disconnect when the pastors oftentimes has a course in apologetics, and then he's trying to use certain arguments and everyone's just staring at him thinking, what is he talking about? It just doesn't really play in the pulpit. Sometimes it does, but oftentimes we were seeing it didn't, and it didn't play out in street-level conversations. Yeah. And so, Mark has 20 years pastoral experience. I'm kind of a pastor-theologian, apologist, so we were bringing this different vocational setting that formed us into how we're thinking about training pastors. And so, that seems to have kind of resonated. We were actually surprised. We didn't know we were going to get really good endorsements. We didn't know so many seminaries were going to pick up the book, yeah. but that's that's what's happened. Yeah, to interject for a moment, for listeners who have no idea <laughs> what analytical philosophy is or analytical philosophers, they're like the engineers of the theological, philosophical world, right? They're really smart, very detailed but they're not good with people and like speaking like <laughs> humans and things like that. It's that was not Josh. He just said that for the right because he has clarifying. analytical philosophers. All, all four analytical philosophers that listen to us just stopped listening to the podcast right there yeah. with Garrick uh, well, on no, that. So. I read them. I just don't recommend them to my well, normal okay. human being so friends. Think about how you have conversations with someone, you don't normally start with kind of this premise. You're mm-hmm. not doing what we would call syllogistic reasoning where you're breaking down. I mean, oftentimes when I'm having a gospel conversation, you know, I'll say, hey, what's your story? Mm-hmm. Yep. If you listen to that story, what you actually start hearing is worldview. You hear yep. what they really value, where they get meaning from. And then that opens doors to say, hey, what about that? Okay, let me pick up on that. And so, actually, what we saw is there's some basic things of how conversations work. Mm-hmm. And so, how do we actually take the theory, which there's plenty of theory in our book, but how do we take this? How do we take church history? How do we take Bible? How do we take what we see as a culminating discipline? It's like preaching. How do you take all of these disciplines and then how do you do that? And so, just like preaching is really hard. Actually, it is challenging to have these conversations. And so, we're trying to really take what people in seminary, what people are learning, but then how can we put this together and do it in a way that it it actually can work out in a conversation. Yeah. Do you think you're presenting something new, or do you feel like you are trying to help folks rediscover a way that apologetic gospel conversations have happened that we've lost? Or where do you think y'all fall on that? Yeah, we're doing serious retrieving from the past, but what we see has happened is certain conversations have dominated. And you're listening to this, and if you're kind of a casual observer of apologetics, one of the things that's happened in North America in the last 100, 150 years is there's been kind of this polarizing conversation amongst professors, and people kind of pick certain kind of tribes. And what we saw is actually there can be a way to pull things together. And sometimes you get stuck in your tribe and you're so afraid that somebody's going to call you out because you you did something wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yes. And I and I think we need to have those discussions. You need to have those discussions in the seminary classroom. But what we felt like is we needed to give them a model and a framework so that people could understand kind of a way, and then you can plug arguments in that. So, yes, we need history. Yes, we need evidence. Yes, we need logic. But all of that takes place within a context, often a context of a story, a worldview. Mm -hmm. And so, we think all of those need to come to the table. And so, we're not the first ones to suggest this by any means, but we saw, for instance, a guy like Tim Keller, who's being very effective in a secular place, in a post-Christian place, and we see the West going there. I mean, New York's kind of leading the charge. I live in Raleigh now. We're behind them but we're on their heels. (laughs) And so, we saw a guy like Tim Keller who's actually bringing apologetics into his ministry. And so, we said, how do we get people there? So, we have a target here. How do we get people there? Maybe somebody listening to this doesn't like all his arguments, but that's not really the point of what I'm making. The point is I'm making is here you have a pastor who's really pulling it in to his ministry in a way that works. Yeah. You recently edited a work on the history of apologetics, and you wrote 
the chapter on Tim Keller yeah. in that work. Did you choose Tim Keller because of what you just said or what he says, the content of his thought or his presentation or all of the above? Or, I mean, what led you to choose Tim Keller? I thought Tim if I Keller? wrote on Keller, we could hang out. <laughs> That's, <laughs> man... <laughs> That's why Garrick writes about Herman Bovink. <laughs> I was going to, I didn't yeah. know so how here, to go there. Here's a, here's a story. So my, my background is theology. I love philosophy. Read it. But that's not my primary training. And my co-author is a PhD from Notre Dame. He's a biblical studies guy. Jack of all trades. That's part of what we see apologetics is as a culminating discipline. But we're thinking, okay, we think we've got something here. And I met a philosopher at Calvin by the name of James K. Smith. And sometimes Jamie has a reputation of not liking apologetics. So I was telling him about the book, a little anxious that maybe he's going to just hate this book. And I could tell he was warming up to what we were doing. I was explaining our approach. And so three weeks later, he didn't tell me he was doing this. He said, hey, I was in New York City. I was hanging out with Tim Keller. I told him about your book. You should write him. He ended up endorsing the book. And then that kind of forged the relationship. Soon after that, we were talking about this book with my other editors and I just kind of said, yeah, well, I'll see about doing Tim Keller and ended up getting an interview and talking more about apologetics and how he sees what he's doing in New York. Yeah. So, I mean, the book, I think somewhere in there, we say he's kind of a paragon of what we're trying to do. We didn't really see a textbook that was kind of emulating him. Now, he's a reformed guy. If you ask him, he's kind of doing the presuppositional thing because he's on the ground. Sometimes the critique on that school is they're very theoretical, but not very practical. And so, he seems to be bringing and borrowing other people who aren't necessarily in that tradition. So, we very much appreciate that and his practical way he goes about it. What about historical apologists? If you were to choose one apologist from history, from the past, someone who, like Herman Bovink, is long dead, who would it be that you would choose as maybe a paragon of apologetics from the past for you? That's easy. That's definitely Augustine. And, and I thought you were going to say Kenny G again. Kenny G, yeah. <laughs> I don't know his apologetic. It's very soothing. He just needs to apologize. So, first of all, Augustine's done lots of different things, but I think one of the things you see, for instance, in City of God is the first half of this long, long book. Well, several things. One, he's a pastor. And even in City of God, he's responding, kind of the first part of the book, he's responding, the whole project actually, he's responding to this objections people are having. The Roman Empire is in trouble. <laughs> and so, people are suggesting, hey, this is because Christianity came in, and, and so the pagans are having these objections, and he's, he's trying to answer this for a friend. He's also writing at a time really before Christendom. So, he's really in a pluralistic setting. So, there's a lot of connections here. There's lots of differences as well, but there's there's lots of connections to our situation. And so, he's dealing with these other different philosophies and belief systems that he knows his people are dealing with. And James K. Smith's new book talks about this. Is he's, he's actually come through all that. So, he knows it all. Yep. He's lived many of those things. And so, he's able to step in their world and say, hey, you've got problems here, you've got problems here, your worldview isn't coherent, it's not livable. And then the second half of City of God, he actually, it's just filled with scripture. And he's telling the story, Mm. and he's telling how it matches up to our deepest aspirations. And really, that's the approach we take in apologetics at the cross. We do something called Inside Out, where it's about stepping inside this other person's world, showing them that they actually maybe have these aspirations, and yet their worldview, the big meta-narrative, the big story they're telling doesn't actually fit that. And then we want to step in and tell a better story, the gospel story. Apologetics of the Cross, we don't do as much there with Augustine, but we've got plans coming. So <laughs> well, That leads me to, I like to go off script because it makes Timothy uncomfortable to not plan everything. So, <laughs> so Kitty G, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's next? You'll have wrapped up the history of apologetics book, what are you working on now or plan to yeah. work on? If I can back up to history of apologetics, is coming out this spring. And one of the things we realized there is there really hasn't been a work done in the history of apologetics for 30 years. Since, was Avery, Dulles? Yeah. Avery yeah. Dulles, which is, of course, years. a totally different perspective anyway yes. on that. Yes, a yeah. Catholic. And so, there hasn't been one in 30 years. Now, we edited the book, so I wrote one chapter. Alistair McGrath's one of the editors at Oxford, and then one of my former colleagues, Ben Forrest, is the other editor. And one of the things that I've learned through that book, we have some light history of apologetics and apologetics at Carl, so I was aware of this, but really the diversity of the church, the rich diversity. And I think that's one of the things that 
sometimes people learn a certain school and the way that apologetics is taught is the teacher stands up and says, this is how you do it. And oftentimes there's good things there, but if you don't get exposed to different things we can retrieve from the Christian tradition, you're missing out on some huge resources. And we were fortunate enough to get just some outstanding scholars in that volume. So the next thing we're doing, the next thing I'm finishing up now too with Zondervan is a smaller book called Telling a Better Story. So that's coming out. And then Mark Allen and I, who wrote Apologetics of the Cross, we are about to get started on the Augustinian Apologetics. Yes. We're excited and nervous about that because, you know, Augustine's a slightly yeah. significant figure. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> no one will have any criticisms or feedback. Or yeah, like yeah. That. No one really cares about Augustine or what he said. So. so what if you could say there's one thing I want to happen in the future of evangelical apologetics? What would that one thing be? What would be one thing that you could say, I want this, I want this for the future of evangelical apologetics? Yeah, well, man, I, I want to. One thing is we need to have pastor apologists. Our seminaries need to raise up pastor apologists. I didn't have a apologetics course required in my MDiv. And I think there's reasons for that. We need a bigger imagination of what actually apologetics is. Audacious goals here, but I want to be a part of what I already think is going on, led by more significant people than me, but about people reimagining about what apologetics can and should be. I would say the other part, and I'm influenced by Smith's work and Augustine's work here, is in the last 150 years, I think we've gotten into a debate about logic and arguing from the ground up versus assumptions and presuppositions, and we've lost in there how to appeal to the heart. In other words, put that maybe a little bit smoother, is we focus too much on the head and not enough the heart in conversations. And one of the things going on right now in, in post-Christendom is that young people are searching for meaning and hope and purpose and significance. And it's like, we're teed up for this. Yeah. We need to step into that gap and say, that is what the gospel offers you. And we can do that in a winsome way. So I think as we're turning the corner here, and even secular people are saying this now, Tim Holland's new book called Dominion is doing this, where he's saying, listen, it doesn't work just to say you're secular and then you're going to have human dignity, universal human benevolence, love everybody. Those are Christian values. And so these aspirations that even in a secular world we're longing for, it doesn't actually make sense in their storyline. Well, we have now come to the point in the show that we like to call Toy Box Hero, in which Garrick and I each take one of our children's toys. We steal from our children's toy boxes, (laughs) and then we place their toys in battle against one another in mortal combat that can end in nothing less than death or a pointless argument. And so, with that, it is time for us to reveal the toys for today. And so, on the count of three, one, two, three. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we have, going against one another, I'll describe mine, I have Hermione's wand. So this is the wand of Hermione from Universal Studios. This is the expensive wand, the one that you get your children because they look at you with pleading (laughs) eyes because they want to participate at Universal Studios in all of the cool things that you can do with one of these very expensive wands that is just like a regular wooden stick except with a glass thing on the end that does something and you have brought i have brought my middle child eli's lego at walker this is a toy that he begged for i mean probably for a year for a solid year he every chance he got he would mention the ATAT Walker. Anytime he somehow ended up on the internet, suddenly pictures of ATAT Walker Lego sets would show up. And so he finally got it. And this thing is large. I I set it down and then realized, oh, 
I can't see Timothy on the FaceTime call. I had to move this thing just so I can visually, I mean, it is large. It is a large ATAT walker, really cool features, lots of guns, things, projectiles that shoot out. So almost hearkening back to last year's Infinity Gauntlet, yeah. we have two universes against one another. We have Harry Potter universe against the Star Wars universe. And which one wins? A wand or an AT? Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> listen, that's not easy. What can a wand, a curse uh -huh. from a wand do to an ATAT? I'm Try to think it might suspend it in the air, but all of those guns are still going to be working when it is suspended in the air. <laughs> right. So things like stupefy and the disarming spell, I wouldn't think would work. I think the ATAT -AT is actually more dangerous than a dragon because it's not an organic creature. Yeah. So the question would be, do you think that the pilots, the ATAT -AT Walker pilots, are they protected entirely in the ATAT -AT Walker cockpit from the curses, hexes that you can do with a wand? That would be the big question. To ask it another way, do you have to see somebody to be able to curse them? Can we come up with any instance in which somebody is cursed without visual contact in the Harry Potter world? My inclination is I can't think of any. Yeah, we hear from Sirius Black in The Order of the Phoenix that time and space matter a great deal in magic and that usually eye contact is necessary. This is in the context of going on to explain to Harry, but the relationship between you and Voldemort breaks the rules because of the curse. But again, that's an exception. That seems to be an exception. I actually have to give it to the ATAT -AT at this point. I'm trying to think through because I don't see, I think that magicians are susceptible to some things that despite all their magic, they've got an amazing amount of magic, but I think that huge mechanical giant, things. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Giant armored vehicles with laser cannons might be a little bit tough to overcome. If you've already subscribed to Three Chords and the Truth, thank you so much for your support. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe today and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. If you're interested in links and show notes for this episode, you can find those at our website, threechordsapologetics.com. As always, that's chords with an H, the kind you play, not the kind you plug. Well, the way Garrick and I see it, one of the greatest evidences of God's common grace is rock and roll. And so now is that moment in the program when we take a look at one of the greatest songs in the history of rock and roll from a theological point of view. I'm Garrick, and to speak of, I had no real fashion sense until I became a freshman in college. Well, I'm Timothy, and I was not allowed to wear stonewashed jeans because rock musicians wore those throughout my childhood and adolescence. When I got to be 17, I, in a moment of rebellion, saved up and bought a pair of stonewashed jeans, thinking that they would automatically make me fashionable. And sadly, they did not. <laughs> this well, today... <laughs> <laughs> this this is an area where uh, the fundamentalism actually probably saved you and you didn't even know it. No one should have been wearing stonewashed jeans, but... Well, today we are going to look at the music of David Bowie and talk about the offensiveness of the cross. Well, let's just think about David Bowie just to begin with. Let's start thinking about what comes to our mind when we think about David Bowie, just memories, whatever it may be on that. Yes, being the child of the 80s that I was, my introduction to David Bowie was 
as for many other children of the 80s, in the legendary, the classic, the still amazing, no matter what anyone says, movie, Labyrinth, where David Bowie played the Goblin King and put together some of, I'd say, his best work, Dance Magic Dance and the Goblin City. It was it was fantastic. And I, I'm just waiting for the day when finally my wife allows me to show this to my children and my children actually see the preview and agree. I kind of have a different perspective on Labyrinth. I did not watch it during the 1980s because my family didn't do the 60s, the 70s, or the (laughs) 80s. They just did the 50s three times in a row. And so I never saw Labyrinth until much, much later. And I think seeing it much, much later does not work for you because to me, it just feels like watching the Labyrinth, that it is one more proof alongside Howard the Duck and Strange Magic that George Lucas should not do any movies that don't start and star and end in wars. And episodes one and two show that he shouldn't have even necessarily done that. But that's my experience of Labyrinth, a much different one than you had in the 1980s. But by the way, the movie came out in 1986. We should emphasize that, that if it is great, it is just part of the greatness of 1986 that goes along with Top Gun and all of the other things that came out in 1986. Which I would argue for. And I had a much different experience later. Probably where I became a Bowie fan was actually in the early 2000s when watching one of the Wes Anderson films. And in 2004, he makes this movie, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, and he has a character in there played by the Portuguese pop samba singer So George. And throughout the whole film, pretty much all So George does is sit there with a classical guitar and play Bowie songs and sing them in Portuguese. And it was absolutely amazing. Bowie himself said, and I completely agree, that had So George not recorded my songs in Portuguese, I would have never heard this new level of beauty which he had imbued them with. I have not actually watched that movie. Perhaps I should, because if I'm honest, musically, most of David Bowie is everything I can't stand (laughs) about music. The early 1980s, there was a a surge of music, especially in the early 80s. Some of it was in the late 70s. And David Bowie was part of this, of these very stiff rhythms, this almost robotic sound to it, this hypnotic, repetitive song structures, heavy, heavy keyboards, lots and lots of keyboards. And All of those things are what I can't stand about music at times. And so David Bowie is so much of that. There's not enough guitars in that music. And so especially starting, really it starts with what's often called the Berlin Trilogy, starting in 1977 with David Bowie, that really he gets into that sort of robotic sounding new wave music. And that I can't stand. That was my early introduction to David Bowie. And I absolutely can't stand that. But here's what I've got to admit. And especially as we got ready for this particular podcast, I kind of dug back into earlier David Bowie, and I found that really he did a lot of stuff in the 70s that actually was really outstanding music that even I liked. There's a song called Five Years that just is absolutely brilliant. The one we're going to focus on today, Word on a Wing, and the guitar riff for the song Ziggy Stardust is really, when you start to listen to that, that's one of the all-time classic guitar riffs of all time. Ziggy played guitar, jamming good with Webb and Gailey and the spiders from Mars. You'd love him in Portuguese, I'm telling you. Well, David Bowie wasn't actually born David Bowie. Real shocker, I know. He was actually born as David Jones. You have to think that someone called him Davy. He had to be Davy Jones. And somebody did. Yes, he was Davy Jones. And in fact, he actually called himself that in some of his early music until he began to be confused with Davy Jones of the band The Monkees. Yeah, that's definitely going to end that. We 
1967, he did change his name to David Bowie. And the reason he did, the reason he chose David Bowie was because he was enamored with American culture and there's the Bowie knife. And so the knife that Jim Bowie used, and he, of course, died at the Alamo. And I guess for David Bowie, it seemed like that was just quintessential America. He was obsessed with America when he was still Davy Jones. When he was a child, he heard the music of Elvis Presley, Little Richard. And in his own words, he said, when I heard Little Richard, I heard God. Now, I'm not against <laughs> Little Richard, but I'll admit, when I hear Little Richard, I don't hear God. In fact, even when he was much, much older, he said his most prized possession was a picture of Little Richard that he had gotten when he was 11 years old in 1958. And so in 1967, he does release this first full album under the name David Bowie. It absolutely flopped. He starts studying dance. He starts writing more music on his own. And in 1969, he released the album that would become known as Space Oddity. And the single from it, Space Oddity, happened to be released five days before the launch of Apollo 11. And so it really caught on at that particular time because this was humanity going to the moon for the first time. Ground control to Major Tom. Ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control. And then in the early 70s, he took on a persona, a persona that he named Ziggy Stardust. And this is this is this is why I both shake my head and love David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust was an alien messiah sent to Earth to bring hope during the last five years before the world was to end. Even amid all the ridiculousness of it and the red dyed hair and all of that, you see this clear spiritual longing, even in the ridiculousness of Ziggy Stardust in that music right there, the search for a Messiah. Now, Ziggy Stardust had a long lasting impact, not just in music and in David Bowie's music, but in the look that he brought about in that. Ziggy Stardust, this alien Messiah was androgynous, neither male nor female. And so David Bowie began dressing in very feminine clothes, putting makeup on. He did interviews often in a woman's dress. And really, this invented the look that became known as glam rock, the makeup, the poofed hair, the outrageous outfits. So we can think about it this way, that without David Bowie, there would have been no poison, no striper, no twisted sister. Now, we can debate whether that's a good thing or a bad no, thing. No, we can't. <laughs> David Cannot. Bowie brought that about. There is no debate. <laughs> There's no debate about the fact that they produced some amazing music anyway, nonetheless. But this spiritual search of David Bowie became really, really clear in 1976 in his album that became known as Station to Station. Sadly, by the time he gets to this point, by the time he's recording Station to Station in 1975, his drug addiction has spiraled completely out of control. He is literally surviving on milk, red peppers, and cocaine by this time. And during the time he's recording this album in 1975, he has really gone down to his deepest point of despair. But during this point of despair in the mid-1970s, he actually considered becoming a Christian. In the end, he didn't become a Christian. And in an interview about five years later, he tells about what he was going through. And here's what David Bowie says, these sad, but very honest and raw and real words. He said, during that time in 1975, when he was at his lowest point, he said, there was a point when I very nearly got suckered into a narrow sort of looking of finding the cross as the salvation of mankind. But in the end, he rejects the cross and he rejects it because he says it's too narrow. He was searching, he was open, but ultimately he did not, he could not embrace the cross because it was a narrow sort of 
of searching in his mind. And when he was at that lowest point and even considering Christianity and considering the cross of Jesus Christ as the hope of humanity is when he wrote a song entitled Word on a Wing, which is really a prayer. says, Lord, I kneel and offer you my word on a wing, and I'm trying hard to fit among your scheme of things. Lord, my prayer flies like a word on a wing. Does my prayer fit in with your scheme of things? And so let's kind of dig into this song and this album and kind of dig into this question of what is it that keeps him from turning to God, it seems like he is offended by the cross, offended by the cross of Christ. He said, I was looking at finding the cross as the salvation of mankind during this time. And yet he ultimately says that it was too narrow. The cross is what offends him. But here's what's fascinating in that. Even though the cross offends David Bowie, he can't seem to escape the cross. During this time, he believed that there were black witches that were chasing after him, witches doing black magic that were chasing after him at this time. He had become very paranoid. And one of the things that he did was he wore a crucifix to try to ward off this dark magic that he felt like was after him at this time. Not only that, the stations that he's describing in Station to Station are the stations of the cross, which are 14 images of the crucifixion and the trial and all of that of Jesus that kind of retell the story of the crucifixion of Jesus. And so he calls this album Station to Station after the 14 stations of the cross, even though he does mingle it with the occult and with Jewish mysticism and all sorts of other things. What he's talking about in Station to Station is indeed the stations of the cross. And to deal with all that he's going through at this time, he is kind of left behind a few years earlier the persona of Ziggy Stardust, and he invents or develops this other persona. And the name of this persona is the Thin White Duke, which he describes later as an aristocratic European who's living in America and is trying to find his way home. And what we find more and more as this character of the Thin White Duke develops is that he is enthralled with Aryan and occultic mythology, and he's trying to find the solutions through the occult and through myths and mythicism. We find all these things, and I think that's what David Bowie is hinting at in the song Station to Station when he says, it's too late, the European canon is here. He's kind of hinting at this fascination with the the occult, this fascination with Aryan myths, things like that, of this character he's created called the Thin White Duke, and he's trying to find his salvation, his solution in this European canon, in his own words, of myths. And he's meandering, though, in the midst of this, he's meandering through the stations of the cross but he can't find his salvation there, but nor can he find it in these myths and the occult that he is getting wrapped up in. We find here this man who is just torn in so many different directions, but he's trying to find his way home and he can't seem to do it. He's haunted by the reality of God. He's haunted by the cross, but he's trying to find his salvation in everything else, but he's he can't escape the reality of God and of the cross, even in the midst of it. Yeah. Think back to those words in the song where he says, I'm I'm trying hard to fit among your scheme of things. He wants to fit into God's scheme. That's his search. But the problem is that God's scheme of things includes the cross, right? Paul in first Corinthians one 23 says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. And it seemed to be both of those things for David Bowie. My prayer flies like a word on the wind. Does my prayer fit in with your skin? 
yeah, we see that he he has this longing for God, this longing for what God might offer, but he's not willing to embrace the cross to get it, even though he sees the power of the cross, station to station through the stations of the cross, wearing a crucifix. He sees the power, but he's not willing to bow before the Christ of the cross. And that's what we see so often is people are sometimes they're willing to embrace God. That seems benign. That seems safe. But they're not willing to embrace the cross. And when, when that, when I see that, I think back to even something in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, Matthew chapter 16, that Peter has just confessed, Jesus, you are the son of the living God. And then Jesus says he's going to have to go to the cross. He's going to have to die. And Peter says, no, Lord. He rebukes him and says, no, Lord, it cannot be. And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. And I think when we think of that, when we consider that, we see this reality that we also see in David Bowie. It seems okay to think about a Messiah. It seems okay to think about God. But when it comes to the cross, he cannot embrace that. And that's just humanity's pattern to develop false gods in place of a God who would go to the cross. You see that in Romans chapter one, there's this progression in Romans chapter one in which it says, everybody knows that there's a God. And yet, how do they respond to it? They respond to it eventually by turning to idols. And then those idols that are made of created things, those idols turn into sexual perversion, and humanity goes lower and lower and lower simply in an attempt to escape the true God who has revealed himself in a Christ who was crucified. And so that's what we do. We turn either to idols or we try to tame the God of Scripture. We try to tame the God who would go to the cross and end up turning that God into an idol. But whether it's through turning or taming, both of those are idolatrous. They really are. And we see that in David Bowie, this offensiveness of the cross and trying to substitute something else in place of the cross. And, and the cross does seem narrow and offensive to the human mind outside of God's transforming work in our lives, because the cross, it puts our rebellion on full display, that there has to be a punishment for our rebellion. It reveals that there is one and only one particular God who really deals with the human condition. It reveals a God who has been among us, who in Christ, he suffers the punishment that we deserve. It reveals a God who does unexpected things, and it really reveals as well a God who holds life in his hands when we see it in light of the empty tomb. And so the cross was offensive in the first century. It was offensive in the 20th century. It was offensive in the 21st century. It's still offensive throughout all of these times, throughout the time of David Bowie to today and all the way back to the first century. The cross is offensive to the fallen human mind. I think people are also offended by a God who, in response to the cross, demands, requires an exclusive obedience to him as the way of life and flourishing for us. And I think people struggle with that as well. Bowie saw the cross of Christ as narrow, right? Those are the words that he used, but he still seems to have wanted God. But the fact that Christianity tells him he has to go through the cross of Christ. That was unacceptable to him. In one interview, he says, I'm not quite an atheist, and it worries me. And in 1992, he knelt on the stage at the Freddie Mercury tribute concert, and he prayed the Lord's Prayer. Before that, we had a, a song that he performs in 1989 called Bus Stop, which in that song, he says, I love you despite your convictions, that God never laughs at my jokes. I'm a young man at odds with the Bible, but I don't pretend faith never works. So he seems to have seen prayer as useful, but not the cross. I'm a young man at odds with the Bible, but I don't pretend faith never works. Down on my knees, at the he bus. got married and said, 
a marriage that is sacred before God has to happen in a church. He believes that there's a value and there's a power in that. But when it comes to Jesus, he goes on to say in the song Bus Stop that he performs with the band Tin Machine, he says, now Jesus, he came in a vision and offered redemption from sin. I'm not saying I don't believe you, but are you sure that it really was him? (laughs) He's got this doubt about Jesus, but ultimately it comes down to that it's a rejection of the cross. And so what we find in David Bowie's music is such a deep spiritual aspect to what he has to say. And it reminds me of what Flannery O'Connor once said about the American South. She said that the American South isn't Christ-centered, but it is Christ-haunted. And I think about David Bowie in that same type of an idea. It's not that he was Christ-centered. He certainly was not. But he was Christ-haunted. There was something about Jesus that haunted him, that drew him, but he was unwilling to embrace the fullness of who Jesus is, which means, which requires that we embrace the cross as well. He just wasn't willing to do that. Those are good words. It's hard to believe that it's now been four years since David Bowie passed away. I don't know who writes those reviews of artists or albums or whatnot and puts them in iTunes, but when thinking about the impact of David Bowie, I do believe that whoever writes those blurbs said some some very true things, had some good reflections on David Bowie. And I think it comes out even in yours and my reflection of him at the beginning of the segment and that the fact that everyone has a David Bowie that they first fell in love with, right? And that was and that was different for so many people, whether it's the the weird Ziggy Stardust or the Goblin King in Labyrinth or as he got older and more mature. But the amazing thing about Bowie was his ability to constantly reinvent himself, wildly reinvent himself at times, even though he risked alienating fans at each turn, right? He had convictions and creative ideas. And one of his convictions was that he had to follow these creative ideas. And so he was a he was a music icon, multifaceted. He was very provocative. I actually call him a gifted actor as well, even though he didn't really have to be gifted for his role in Labyrinth, but he did several other things down the road. He was fearless and deservedly is in the Rock and Roll uh, Hall of Fame. And really looking back at some things of David Bowie in preparation for this segment, I listened to a bunch of things that I'd never listened to before. And one of the songs that really captured my attention that was just a beautiful song, just the way it's very subtle and the way he does it, and it's beautiful. It's a song called God Knows I'm Good. And in this particular song, it starts off with an elderly woman who is stealing food that she can't afford. She needs food and she's stealing it. And she says in the song, God knows I'm good. God may look the other way. It's as if she knows she's under judgment, but she in essence is saying, I need this and surely God will look the other way that I'm stealing this. And then she faints, falls to the floor and people gather around her, lift her up. And in the midst of that, what she finds is that because she stole this, she's not met with judgment, but she's met with grace at that point. And in the end, it slightly twists what she said from, God knows I'm good, God may look the other way, to God knows I'm good, surely God won't look the other way. In other words, God has looked on me with love and with favor that in my time of need, my need is being met. And I'm met as I wake up with my eyes open with people around me who are caring for me and caring about me. And it is a beautiful parable of law and grace. She goes in, she takes something that she needs, and she knows that it is wrong. She takes something that she needs, and she is fearful. And yet then when judgment comes, so to speak, it is a voice not of the law and of condemnation, but rather it is a word of grace. God has looked on her and shown not law, not judgment, but grace. And the sad part that David Bowie never seems to catch, that he never seems to see in his own life, is that this is true. This can be true. 
but it's only true in Jesus and only true because of the cross that he saw as being too narrow to embrace. It is only because God has poured out his wrath on Jesus upon the cross that it is possible that the dream he has in the song of God looking at us, not with judgment, but with grace, not judging us on the basis of the law, but on the basis of grace and mercy, that only happens in and through the cross of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't see that. He doesn't see it, even though he's able to reach for it and lean into it in this beautiful parable in the song, God Knows I'm Good. He doesn't capture it in his own life. And a crowd of honest people rushed to help a tired old lady Who had fainted to the whirling wooden floor Crying, God knows I'm good, God knows Full confession, all of the Bowie songs that we've spoken about in depth today, I had never heard before recording this podcast or before preparing for this podcast. And another song that he released one month before his death was part of a musical on which he was working called Lazarus. In that song, there are these lines. He says, look up here. I'm in heaven. I've got scars that can't be seen. I've got drama can't be stolen. I'm in danger. I've got nothing left to lose. Such powerful words that he has this longing for heaven. But as far as we know, he does not reconcile with Christ before his death, as far as we know. He longed like Lazarus for a new life, but what he didn't see is that the one who called Lazarus out of the grave, this one after after whom he even names a song in the month before he died, but the one who called Lazarus out of the grave was the same Christ who went to the cross, and he is known only in and through the cross. And that's what David Bowie, with all of his brilliance, with all of his musical prowess, with all that he was able to think of and to consider somehow, he never comes, at least as far as we know, to that recognition and realization. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. And also, thank you to B&H Academic for their sponsorship. Go to bhacademic.com for more theology and apologetics resources. If you're considering further training in apologetics, I also want to invite you to take a look at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Whether you're thinking about a master's degree or a doctoral degree in apologetics on campus or online, we would be glad to have you as a guest in our virtual preview day. To register, go to sbts.edu slash visit. That's sbts.edu slash visit. And also, if you're interested in another podcast that's focused on ministry in urban contexts, go to urban.sbts.edu. That's urban.sbts.edu to listen to the Urban Ministry Podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, and I'm already looking forward to joining you next time on three chords and the truth, the apologetics podcast.